All right, everybody. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman and this is ATOS, your memory-stealing speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. So I'm back a, a bit early this month with an episode about The Last Witness by K.J. Parker. This is a book that was originally published in 2015. And of course, as you are used to hearing me say by now, uh, the reason I'm back a bit early for this one is that one of our Patreon supporters commissioned this episode, this bonus episode. So I will be back at the end of the month with our regularly scheduled episode as well, which is on Robert E. Howard's only Conan novel called The Hour of the Dragon. But before we start talking about The Last Witness, let me say a huge thanks for this commission. ATAS, right, this show, the whole network, all of it is only possible because of this type of support, and we are so grateful for that. And of course, it also brings us a ton of joy to do these commissions because we get to discover writers who are new to us, and that is the case for me this episode. I had heard of K.G. Parker before. I saw a number of great reviews about 16 Ways to Defend a Walled City. And as someone who has written about sieges, uh, sieges during the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, that is something that piqued my interest. But I, I had never gotten to it, uh, obviously, I guess. Uh, but I was really excited to get a chance to check out Parker's writing with this book. Uh, I should say, too, before we get going, that K.J. Parker is a, a pen name. It's a, a pen name for Tom Holt. I don't think that he'll mind that I'm just going to call him Parker, since that's the name on the book. But I do want to make sure that we acknowledge that. And also, I wish I had adopted some kind of pseudonym for, for podcasting. I don't know. Maybe it's not too late. If you've got suggestions for a, a name change for me, I would love to hear them for sure. But all right, let's let's uh, let's get into this book. I really, really loved it. So I'm excited to talk about it. Let's uh, Let's go talk about The Last Witness. First thing to say about The Last Witness is that it is set in a secondary world, a world that is not our own. The fantastical, the, the speculative world here, it very much resembles Elizabethan, maybe Jacobean England, London in particular, we should say, uh, with the exception that we don't get a glimpse actually of a bustling theater scene. But in terms of technology and social structure, that is what we're talking about. There are also pubs, people drink beer, the streets all have proper English names. Uh, the big differences are that the organized religion is not Christianity. Uh, it also doesn't seem to be an especially important uh, political institution or, or economic institution for that matter. Uh, there is also no monarch in this land. It is uh, some kind of mercantile republic, though the, the precise nature of the Constitution is, is not relevant to the story, so we don't get a whole lot on that. There is not any magic. There's not any weird creatures. There's no flying machines, right? This is what's called low fantasy, meaning that it is a world that obeys the laws of physics. It has the same flora and fauna as Earth. It just isn't Earth. And I'm going to want to talk more about that in a segment or two. The story is told in the first person. It's told by a man who, I guess he must be middle-aged, though he often does sound more like he's in his late 20s. The narrative voice, though, is very strong, to be clear, and it is one of the real strengths of the book. It's a hard-boiled voice, and it is a story wrapped up in the underworld of this pseudo-Elizabethan England. More on that in a moment, though, because we need to talk about the gimmick first. The narrator has a strange numinous ability to telepathically, I guess, uh, enter another person's mind and prowl around in the library of their memories, and then to take individual memories from him or her. 
the narrator. He can also view the memory so that he knows what it is. This obviously is a highly useful skill for ascertaining guilt or for tracking down stolen property, right? All, all, all of those sorts of things. And the narrator does quite a bit of that, though, though never for any kind of police. It's always a little bit shady. He also does some work helping people forget painful memories or, or, or painful events and situations and, and people, which really is to say it's the exact plot of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, in, in, in some sense anyway. We're going we're gonna to come back to that a little bit later. But then he also does a ton of work erasing the memories of hirelings and flunkies who've helped commit serious business crimes to which the orchestrators would prefer not to have any witnesses. And obviously, hey, the name of this book is The Last Witness. So something like that is going to be driving the plot. But the deal with this memory taking, this memory stealing, the deal with this is that the narrator then has the memory and, and he himself has a perfect memory. He doesn't forget anything, uh, not anything that happened to him, but also not any of the memories that he consumes. And so there's at least a little confusion in his mind sometimes about which experiences are his and which are someone else's. Uh, the other thing to note about how this works is that once the narrator has the the memory, the the, the target or, you know, victim, maybe is what we should call these people, the person whose mind he is in uh, no longer has that memory. It's just not there. Uh, I'll go into the specifics on that in the, the themes and motifs segment where we're going to talk about memory more extensively. The book does have a plot, but that plot doesn't really show up until the second act, and we don't quite realize it even is the plot until the third, which is all brilliantly done. That is a move that I just really, really enjoyed, because the, the bulk of the book functions more as a character study. It functions as an exploration of the fantastical world, something that I'm always a fan of. In fact, really, in speculative fiction, I, I get annoyed when the plot finally shows up, because I'm here for the world above all else. And Parker really structures this book as a collection of short scenes. Some of them are a few pages, but some are only one page long. And these are little stories, little vignettes told to us by the narrator, who is ultimately telling the story of his life. You know, it's the story of his life and how much it sucks, really. But he has a lot of digressions along the way. So on one page, we might get a little story about a job he did once, and then we'll get a story about something from his childhood decades ago. Then we'll get a scene about him trying to pay off a gambling debt. So we get several different layers of the past, and, and, and then something that feels like the narrative present. We get all of that interwoven out of step. And Parker... Parker does this deftly. It works as an extremely well-written and, and well-paced page-turner. And the whole thing fills me with writerly envy, right? This is the type of storytelling that I wish I was capable of doing. It's so brilliant. But as I said, there is a plot. So let, let me sum up the plot. I'm going to do that very quickly here before we get into the, the heart of the episode. What drives the action is that the narrator gets wrapped up in the illicit affairs of some wealthy dude and this wealthy dude's son. They've been committing embezzlement. Someone has found out. They need the narrator to wipe that guy's memory. And then as time goes on, they need the narrator more and more to either remove witnesses or to interrogate people. And of course, right, eventually, the narrator himself knows too much, right? He is the last witness. And so they tried to remove him from the equation uh, the old-fashioned way. 
That doesn't work, though, and he escapes to another country just as this wealthy dude and his son are, in fact, overthrowing the current ruling regime back home, which is not something that the narrator saw coming, even though he's done all of this work for for them. It, it turns out that that's actually what they've been up to the whole time, that they're part of a faction that was planning a coup, but the narrator never really glommed on to that, actually. Now, that is the plot in the sense that it's what drives the action and propels the the narrative. But there is another story happening at the same time that turns out to be what this book is really about. It's about the, the narrator's personal life. It's about horrible decisions that he has made in the past and, and being confronted with those decisions, being confronted with his own monstrosity. There's an interlude in the second act when the narrator is begged by this poor woman that, that he's never met before. She wants him to she wants him to help her daughter forget that she's been raped. The narrator is at this point trying to get out of this whole memory wiping business to be, begin with. He's, he's made a lot of money and can retire finally. And I think he also does have a sense that he shouldn't really be working for this wealthy dude and his son. But this is a pretty serious request, right? This is something that he can do to help someone. And he agrees to do that. And the young woman who's been raped, she has a peculiar mind herself. And when he enters her mind to erase this memory, she's actually there watching him, right? She's like in her memory library. She's aware of him. And this is something that has never happened before. Now, in the moment that we're reading this, this incident doesn't seem to amount to anything, right? For like a big chunk of the story. But the narrator does think back on it. He, he wonders how it's possible, right? This is something that happens from time to time for, you know, the bulk of, of Act 2 and even getting into Act 3. And eventually, of course, right, this young woman goes to work for the new regime doing the same type of work that the narrator does because, hey, she too can steal memories. And now the narrator pieces it together he realizes that she is his daughter from a relationship that he had decades ago. The mother, that is to say, the narrator's lover, is a woman who had died while he was away. And he later learned that she had been pregnant, but he, he never knew that she had given birth. But, but clearly, she died in childbirth. We knew that already. And so this book ends with father and daughter confronting each other in this foreign country where the, the narrator is hiding because she's been sent to deal with him because he is still the last witness, even though he's fled his homeland. But she doesn't steal his memories. She doesn't kill him. Instead, she does something that he can't do. She telepathically gives him memories. And these are his own memories, his own memories that she has taken from him on occasions when they have met in the past, occasions that he doesn't remember because she has wiped his memory of those meetings. And with these memories returned, the narrator realizes that his life story is different than he thought it was, that, that he's a monster, that he's caused the deaths of almost everyone he loves. And in the end, the narrator's daughter makes him delete himself from her own memory so that she can carry on with her life without the trauma that he's caused her. And then the narrator returns to his own country. He retires completely from this memory-wiping business, and he becomes a farmer. Or, well, not really a farmer, right? He's a rich person who lives on a rural estate, and he calls himself a farmer, but is not doing any actual real farming. But he nonetheless settles into a comfortable material existence, but he is now what he describes as the world's greatest living authority on suffering. And that's the end of the book, but there is a ton to talk about in our Themes and Motifs segment, so let's, uh, let's zip right into that. So let's just start with 
the elephant in the room. Memory, right? This is a book about how memory functions, about the role that memory plays in our identities, right? How do our memories shape who we are? But I want to begin just by characterizing and describing how memory functions in this book, because that functioning is really one of the speculative fiction elements of the story. So the, the narrator is able to telepathically enter other people's minds and to locate individual memories and take them for himself. He tells us that when he does this, it's like browsing the stacks in a, a library. And in fact, it's not like that at all. It, it is that. We all have a library in our minds where our memories are stored in some orderly and cataloged fashion. And it is the same library for each of us. And this library that the, the narrator sees when he does this, this library actually resembles a real library that the narrator has encountered. And we get a very brief speculation from him about what that means. And really, it's a question, right? Is the library in our minds the mental construct of the narrator that helps him navigate our minds? And he based it on this real library that he, he saw once, maybe when he was very young and just doesn't remember having seen it at that age? Or did the architect who built this library also have the ability to enter people's memory libraries. And we don't ever find out, but it is a really interesting question. But nonetheless, that is how the searching works, right? Each of our memories are stored as a scroll that is nicely labeled. Uh, the narrator pulls it from the cubbyhole where it is stored. He opens it and he reads it. And the act of reading it then transfers the memory from the target's mind to his mind, uh, to the narrator's mind. And that seems to be the only way this works. He, he can't delete memories without taking them for himself. And we know explicitly that he is unable to create or implant new memories for people, uh, though his daughter is able to do that. So this question of, of, of whether or not the library that he has seen here is a, a metaphor is really interesting. I mean, we do tend to think about our own memory system in metaphorical terms. I usually envision not a library, but an old-fashioned filing cabinet. And uh, and really, since my wife and I had our baby and uh, I don't get more than about five hours of interrupted sleep each night, I have been struggling to find the files a lot. I, I just lose words all the time. My, my wife does too, and we've even taken just to using doodad as a substitute for nouns that are uh, just not where they're supposed to be in our memories. Uh, in fact, you've probably heard me uh, do something exactly like this from time to time on a podcast, less so on, on ATOS, but in the, the more conversational podcasts, uh, I've said the wrong word from time to time. In fact, I forgot the word chair the other day. But you also probably think about your memory this way also, though you, you might think of it more as the folder system on your computer operating system, or I don't know, maybe it is a library for you. This idea, this, this metaphor, it's old. Hellenistic philosophers wrote about memory in terms of using a library. And ancient society was very, very concerned about memory because they didn't have nearly as much recourse to artificial information storage systems the way that we do. I mean, we just take them for granted. We don't have to remember anything, right? How many phone numbers do you know, right? But in the ancient world, people really needed to use their memories. And so they thought about it a lot. Ancient philosophers wrote about memory a lot. Now, this idea of thinking about memory as a library or an old filing cabinet or a computer operating system, it is a convenient metaphor but it is not actually the way that memory works, of course, right? I think we all know that intuitively. And there has been a ton of work done on memory in the last 20 years or so, especially as both dementia and Alzheimer's are becoming way more common afflictions than they used to be. 
But what all of these metaphors are envisioning and, and what Parker describes in the book is episodic memory. These are the memories that we have of distinct episodes in our lives, or events is another way to describe that. But that is only one type of memory that we have and, and so much of what we know and, and everything that we know, right? Everything that we know is something that we remember. And so much of what we know is stored in semantic memory. So imagine a fact that you know, think about just something that you know, like there are seven continents or that English is an Indo-European language, right? That is just something you know. It's what we consider general knowledge. But you learned that at some specific point in your life during some episode, right? And you probably don't remember that episode. It's not stored in your episodic memory. It's stored in your semantic memory. Uh, this is true of skills that we have as well, like riding a bicycle or driving a car, playing an instrument. Uh, you might actually remember learning to drive, or you might remember specific piano lessons, but your ability to drive a car, your ability to play the piano, those abilities are not linked to those memories of those episodes, right? Your ability to play the piano is not tied to your memory of those piano lessons. That is all stored somewhere else. Now, on top of that, too, even our memory of distinct episodes is not connected only to that episode itself. And, and here you can think about something fun or something funny that happened to you, maybe an adventure that you had, something you've told people about, right? Now you have a memory of the episode itself. You also have a memory of the episodes in which you have told other people about it. Uh, maybe you've even written it down in a text message or a blog or something like that. And so... You have that memory embedded in multiple episodes, and also, at this point, really, it, it's entered into your semantic memory as well. All of this is just to say that if you want to telepathically enter someone's mind and delete their memory of an event, you know, maybe that's a, a conversation you wish they hadn't overheard, or uh, you just want to see if they're the person who stole your money or something like that, if you want to do that, it is a lot more complicated than we're able to depict in a story. And we see that here in The, the Last Witness, in fact, right? Parker sends us to this library only when he's dealing with something that is truly episodic. But he does have the narrator steal people's skills as well as their memories. The ability to play the flute is uh, an important thing in the third act, but that is a skill that he has stolen from someone else. But Parker never shows us that happening, and that is precisely because the metaphor of the, the library, the file cabinet, the computer operating system, it breaks down for that kind of thing, because that skill is stored in the semantic memory, and the metaphor just doesn't work for that. Now, ultimately, none of that really matters. It's just something I got interested in reading about because of this story, because what Parker is really up to here is telling a story about how memories shape who we are. In fact... We are our memories, right? So what happens when we have memories that don't belong to us? And what happens when we lose some of our important memories? Now, Parker gives us a little bit on the first question, right? What would it be like to have memories that aren't yours? But it's really the second question that he's most interested in. Very carefully, from the first pages, Parker has built up this idea of who the narrator is and how he's wound up in this line of work and also, why he always gambles away all of his money and just generally lives an unhappy life, even though he has this skill that he hires out at a highly profitable rate. The story begins in the narrator's childhood, where we learn that he sleeps in a loft with his siblings and that the parents argue all the time and, and, and argue loudly. 
We learn that their father is a drunk. He's physically abusive, to his wife at least. It doesn't seem to be abusive to the kids at least. And we infer, and we infer this even before we're told, we infer that the narrator put an end to all of that by getting rid of his father. And we pity the narrator. We think that he's had a rough childhood and that all of this has damaged and, and, and scarred him, right? watching his mother be beaten, having to kill his father, worrying about his siblings, and so on. We do also learn along the way that the narrator remembers a childhood incident with his sister. It's an incident that he regrets. They were on their way home, uh, taking a shortcut through some woods. The narrator is leading the way, and he has to push back the branch of a bush. Now, he should hold it for his younger sister, but he thinks it would be funny to let it whack her in her face, and so he lets it go. But of course, it isn't funny because it gets her right in the eye. It really hurts her. It's not just a, a red mark on her forehead that's going to disappear in 10 minutes. He's really damaged her. Now, that's all we get about that. We know the narrator feels bad about it, but that's it. I did things like this when I was a kid, too. Maybe you did also. I mean, right now, I can immediately call to mind four instances of something like this from my own childhood times when I did something to another kid that I had seen on TV, things that I thought would be funny that in fact, turned out not to actually be funny at all when you do them to a real person. Now, in my case, no one was hurt. I mean, one of these incidents was just dumping water on somebody in a situation when they couldn't change their clothes for several hours. No one was hurt, but I felt miserable about what I'd done, and I, I learned from it. This was part of my journey to learning, to developing empathy. And we get the sense that that's the, the narrator's experience here as well. That is, until his daughter gives his memories back to him, and we see the whole story. Well, it turns out that the, what he really remembers as having cost her some, some pain and her having been mad about it is that he, he really did damage his sister's eye. She went blind and the damage made her ugly as well. And so when she got older, that ugliness made her feel outcast and unwanted. And in the end, she killed herself. And it was really only after her suicide that their father took to drinking and when the narrator does eventually intervene in a fight and end up stabbing his father and killing him, his mother does not think her son was a hero for saving her. She thinks he's a monster for killing her husband, a monster who has already killed her daughter and also is the person who turned her husband into this broken man to begin with. And so it turns out that our, our narrator is not the victim of some random tough childhood but is in fact responsible for bringing grief to his own family. This one decision you know, certainly was not his intention to do harm, but he threw good money after bad, so to speak. That's what we learn right away. And, but ultimately, too, and this is where we really see who the narrator is, what a unsympathetic person he really is, because ultimately when he met his daughter, he paid her to take these memories from him because they were so traumatic, and then also to wipe his memory of her, of, of have any of this having been done to begin with. And these aren't even the only memories that he doesn't have, that, that he gets back from his daughter now at the end of the story. Throughout the book, he tells us all about the love of his life, this young woman from an elite family he visits secretly at night with vague plans for eloping. It, it seems like a beautiful love story. The, the story that he tells us is that he had to be gone for a while because of work, and when he came back, she was dead. She died in childbirth. He actually encounters her father. It's her father who tells him all of this. And they all thought that the, the narrator had actually figured out that she was pregnant and just run off. And this is not true. 
And we get the sense, right, when the narrator tells us this story, we get the sense that he regrets that this happened. He laments the death of the baby as well. Now, of course, that baby didn't die. And once we know that ourselves, we can go back to that bit of the story and we can realize that the woman's father never explicitly said that. He just let the narrator and also us, the readers, infer that. But here we are, spending the book, thinking that the narrator is mourning the death of this child. And so when he gradually starts to piece together that this woman he's encountered, this woman who is aware of him when he's in her mind, when he pieces together that she must be his daughter, we think that we're in for a happy reunion. But we're not. And it turns out that he's met her before, that he's known all about her existence. She came to him years ago when her adoptive family needed help, and he gave her the bare minimum of financial assistance. And even then, he made her work for it. He made her wipe the memories of his sister's suicide and really all of the the, the details of his childhood. He, he was left with some of it, just enough to remember who he is, but what he was left with cast him in a good light. And in fact, he and his daughter met several times. He had just never had any interest in her. He also had her even wipe his memories of her too, because he just didn't want to be bothered with knowing that he had this potential obligation. So we're duped the whole time, right? We have been duped. We spend a lot of this book feeling sorry for this narrator. We spend a lot of this book thinking that he had this awful childhood, and then he lost the love of his life and lost his, his daughter, who he didn't even know was coming into the world. And we even think that because he had a rough childhood, that he desperately wants to have a family of his own and get it right. But that is only possible because of these omissions. When we have the full story, when we have the full memories, then we know who he really is. But of course, it's not just us, right? It's him too. This is how he thought of himself in the absence of those memories. And so at the end of the book, he is confronted with his full and real identity as these memories are returned to him. It's heartbreaking for us, the readers, to learn this about him. I mean, we knew he wasn't the most upstanding person, but still, we felt for him. And now that's shown just to be a pack of lies, uh, lies of omission, but still a pack of lies. We also feel for his daughter, who has seen inside his mind, seen exactly who he is, but who herself has been consumed by a desire for vengeance. And in the end, after she's restored her father's memories to him, she makes him delete himself from her memory. And with him gone, she no longer is this angry and vengeful person. She's someone else entirely and is therefore capable of going on to live a full and rich and healthy life. At least that's the impression that we're left with. It's the hope that we're left with. And so the general idea then is that if we remove the episodic memories of our traumas, then we actually remove the trauma itself, right? We can remove the grief. We can remove the sorrow and the damage, and we can go be happy. We can get a bit of a do-over, and as I said earlier, this is the exact premise of the film Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. But if I recall, and it has been about 15 years, but if I recall, the idea there is that it maybe doesn't matter that much. You're still you, even if you can erase a person or an event from your memory. You're still fundamentally you, and the effects of your traumas are still there. And that certainly lines up better with my sense of how my own personal traumas affect me today, decades after those events happened. I'm not consciously remembering those tragedies when they are affecting my objectively over-the-top baby-proofing efforts, for example. 
And so it is a nice fantasy that we could just delete that, but that is all it is, a, a fantasy. And maybe that's the point, because it doesn't work for our narrator, not in the end, and maybe it doesn't work for his daughter either, even though that is the hope that we are left with, the hope we're left yearning for at the end of the book. All right, that was a lot on just one topic. So let's move into the last segment. Let's go talk some strengths and weaknesses. Now, like, I don't have any complaints. I don't even have any petty gripes or grumbles about this book. On the other hand, though, The Last Witness has a ton of strengths. The motif of memory, motif of memory and how that operates with grief and identity, this really, really resonated with me. It had me doing a lot of remembering this month, a lot of thinking about who I am, how I got this way, and also whether I want to stay that way, and if I don't, what I can do about it. And that's what literature is for, right? I especially think that's what fantasy literature is for. It's aspirational in some way. It gets us to think about who we want to be in the world. And this book certainly did that for me, and I'm really grateful for it. I'm so grateful to have read this book, if just for that experience alone. And this book is also just a fun breeze of a read with a really awesome, hard-boiled, first-person narrative voice. Let me, let me give just one example here, though. What I really want to do is just read the whole freaking book to you. But I'll give one example. Uh, this is from pretty early in the book. It's on the theme of memory, although on an aspect of it that I, I didn't get to, which is why I've chosen it. Believe me, I've heard it all. Seen it all. I remember it all. Everything. If you can imagine it, I've got it tucked away in the back of my mind somewhere, vivid as if it were yesterday, sharp and clear as if I were standing there. Murder, rape, every kind of physical injury, every variation and subspecies of the malicious, the perverted, the degrading, the despicable. Sometimes as victim, sometimes as perpetrator, surprisingly often as both. And... Given the slippery nature of memory, does that mean I've actually suffered those things? Done those things? Might as well have. Close enough. Good enough. Do I wake up screaming at night? Well, no. Not since I learned how to distill poppies. And I just love this voice. It's, it's compelling, but it's also kind of confrontational, and it's clear that the narrator has a real chip on his shoulder, and, and he does. He very definitely does. I just want to say that the structure, the, the pacing of The Last Witness are just superb. This is a book made up of about a hundred short scenes. There are no chapters, just scene breaks. Some of them are several pages long, but, but others, like the one I just read, are only a paragraph or two. And so it just moves. It really moves along at a, a clip of a pace. But Parker does that while also bouncing around in time and narrating past events to us that as the story goes on, anyway, we, we later aren't sure actually happened to the narrator himself rather than to someone he's taken a memory from. And this is not an easy thing to, to balance, but it all feels so effortless. You, you cannot see the strings in this book at all, even though it is a book with a lot of strings, right? You just cannot see them. And that is a, a real accomplishment. I said once already in this episode that this book filled me with writerly envy, but I'll, I'll, I'll repeat that here. This book is so, so good from a craft perspective. Just amazing. I also super love this world. My impression is that Parker has other stories set in this fantasy world, but I, I don't know that for sure. But in either case, this world feels full. It's a, a world that has weight to it. There's 
actually quite a bit here about the currency, even the, the banking system actually gets a lot of attention here. Uh, in fact, about a third of the way through the book, I was beginning to wonder if banking might actually be the major motif. I was going to like talk about banking a lot uh, on this episode, and I, I actually could have. I just chose not to. And banking is not, you know, it's not the major motif of this book, but there is a lot of it. And I found it really interesting, but also lent credence to the world. And so if, if my hunch here, my impression is, is right, that Parker has other books in this world. And if you've got suggestions for other stories set in this world, I would love to have them because I'd like to go back to live in this world just a little bit more, a little bit longer, please. But all right, I'm going to bring the review to a close here. I do hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com or stop by our subreddit and talk with me about memory here. Talk with me about the themes and motifs that I focused on, but, but also especially on what I left out. And honestly, in this case, I'm not even sure that I've really read the plot correctly. But by which I'm, and what I mean by that is that I'm not sure if I've actually glued together all of the memory fragments that we get. It's possible that I've too easily trusted the narrator's daughter as well. So you might have a totally different understanding of who the narrator is, what his actual biography is. You might have a totally different understanding of those things than I do. And if that is true, I would love to hear about that. But all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDormand. As always, you can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. So I will be back at the end of the month with our regularly scheduled episode on the Robert E. Howard Conan novel, Hour of the Dragon. And then I'm also going to be back a bit early again in November with another commissioned episode, this time on the Rachel Pollock novel, Unquenchable Fire, which I just adored. But until then, until next time, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.